Hello and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by one of the Athletics Mets beat writers, Tim Britton. Tim, we spent a whole, whole lot of time worrying about how the Mets would perform against left-handed pitchers in the postseason and how their bullpen would hold up. The Mets played a three-game series against the San Diego Padres. The only game they won was the one against a left-handed pitcher, and their bullpen was fine. Uh, The starting pitching didn't show up, and the offense didn't do so well either. Yeah, it's, you know, it's every year, the the postseason is such a small sample, uh, and that, you know, weird things happen in the postseason. Uh, that make I mean, literally, literally every show dating back to June, <laughs> we were t- talking about right-handed power bats and and how necessary it was going to be for facing a left-hander in the postseason. You know, it, it, the the thing that fans are most upset about, still probably about uh, Buck Showalter's man- managing in the postseason, was that he started Darren Ruff, who reached base two of his three plate appearances uh, in a right, game that they the won. Problem. Um, you know, it's like I, I think about this at the around the trade deadline all the time that. Uh, a lot of times, like the biggest trade deadline acquisition is someone who you don't, you never expect to be that. You know, it's uh, World Series MVP Jorge Soler, it's World Series MVP Steve Pierce, it's guys like that. It's not Juan Soto, you know, uh, and that's what happens in the postseason. Like if you are the Mets right now, uh, like how much how much easier would it be to swallow if like it was Juan Soto who did to you what Trent Grisham did in this series like Trent Grisham reached base 7 times in the month of September he was colder entering the postseason than Darren Ruff and then he reaches base yeah, 7 times in eight, 7 times in the month yeah then reached on. base 8 times in 3 games hit two home runs made a couple of outstanding plays in center field like was the best player in the series you know was the series mvp a guy who completely changed the way the mets pitched the padres lineup when he homered off jacob degrom in, the set, in game 2 so uh it's it's just it's remarkable what can happen in a short series and and who stands out and um you know i think it's it's interesting when you get into kind of the the blame game after a series like this because uh, especially after a game like game three it, it seemed to me like there were like warring factions among the Mets fan base where one side was saying you know they can't win they weren't built to win when their starters uh, flop the way that Scherzer and Bassett flopped in the division series and then you've got another side that says they got one hit <laughs> you got one hit yeah you can't win one with hit. one hit um, and the the you know it's it's possible to hold both in your mind and say like well the you can't win doing either, uh, and they did both. Um, it's one game, but you know they, they were indicative of larger issues that cropped up more toward the end of the season, especially with the rotation. Uh, it's just such a disappointing way to go out, uh, especially given where they were 10, 15 days ago. Yeah, I want to talk about that Game 3 a little bit more in a minute because I thought there was a, a quite a bit to unpack there, uh, given how uh, how brutal of an ending it was to the season but just to your point about uh small sample sizes and and un, unexpected contributors the top four in the Padres offense by OPS uh in the series were Trent Grisham as you mentioned Austin Nola Jerickson Profar and Haseon Kim right who who would have had that in the pool yeah I mean it was like the the San Diego lineup basically worked backwards it was the bottom half of the lineup that killed the Mets time and again you know the the Three walks to Kim on Sunday night were. I, I thought the, you know, the the couple plate appearances that changed the game were in that second inning. It was Bassett issuing the two out walk to Kim after being ahead one and two. Uh, it clearly wanted nothing to do with Grisham pitched around him the same way Degrom had the night before after the home run, uh, and then he gives up the O two. What a turn of events for Trent Grisham! <laughs> you know? I mean, like 
seriously, for a Mets fan, Jacob for, Degrom wants no part of me now. For a Mets fan, for context, that would be like Joe Musgrove slicing through the the, the Mets lineup and then saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw four sliders in the dirt to Darren Ruff. I don't want to throw him a strike. Um, yeah, we got to stay away from Nito tonight. <laughs> and and then you know Nola gets uh, has the good at bat, fouls off a couple of two pitches, and then gets a curveball from Bassett that he rips into left field for a two run single that changes the game. You know, uh, it was how how they handled the seven eight nine part of the order in that inning and a couple different innings. Kim walked three times and scored three times uh, on Sunday. So uh, it's it's just strange how it works that you know they got the big outs against Machado in game two. Uh, that he was not the guy who killed them. Soto was not the guy that killed them. Uh, wasn't you know Josh Bell had the one big hit obviously in game one but uh, it's it's crazy how a, a postseason works like that yeah uh, in game three it felt like I mean I want to talk about Joe Musgrove for for sure uh, and he was he you know regardless of what was going on with the ear thing he was spectacular obviously um, I don't know you know I don't know if there was help involved or not but uh, he was he was excellent whether whether he was uh, you know stretching the the rules or, or otherwise uh, the the one thing it, it it did feel to me a little bit. Um, Buck Showalter going to Musgrove and, and going to the umpires and, and making that move, which we can talk about longer. But uh, also the move, uh, taking out Seth Lugo when he did and going to, to Givens for one out, um, it worked out. But it felt to me like Showalter might have tightened up there a little bit at the end. I thought like I, I thought there were some weird moves in Game 3 in the sense that they, they didn't play it as urgently as I think they needed to. Uh, and, and a that's that's sticking with Bassett for longer. Uh, you know, this was a conversation that I had with with other writers really throughout the regular season. Was that Bassett's a tough guy to navigate in the postseason because he gets himself in. You know, he works through traffic on the bases. He's not a guy who's going who's throwing a lot of one two three innings. Uh, and you know, in a postseason game, okay, fourth inning, two guys on, you're down two nothing. Do you stick with Chris Bassett in that spot or do you go elsewhere? The Mets stuck with him and and they ended up down uh, three runs after four. Um, I thought it was strange that they went to David Peterson in the fifth. Uh, I know that he was facing the top of the San Diego order, which is a, a switch hitter, uh, a righty, uh, and then a couple lefty, uh, a lefty, and then a switch hitter again. Uh, sorry, you know, Profar, Soto, Machado, Bell, Cronenworth. So a lot of lefties in lefties or switch hitters in there. Uh, but you know, it's I, I think the fifth inning of an elimination game when you're down three runs is kind of like the eighth inning of a regular season game when it's tied. Uh, and you wouldn't go to David Peterson in that spot. You'd go to, to Lugo or Adovino, and I, that's what I would have done then. Peterson gives up the run in that inning. You know, given you know, Lugo pitched uh, a, a bit, and then and then Givens gives up a run. You know, I, I thought uh, that was where you know you pitch you pitch Lugo, Adovino, and Diaz for what you've got them for as early in that game as you as you can to keep it keep it in, in striking distance. You know, look, it didn't matter in the end, um, and uh, they weren't they weren't touching Joe Musgrove. Uh, as far as 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 Musgrove's perform, it was it was a phenomenal performance and in line with the way he had pitched in the month of September. That was the scary thing going into the series for the Mets was, you know, on paper coming into the 2022 season, you say, man, Scherzer, Degrom, Bassett, that's a great top three. You like that over any top three in baseball. The top three right now, the way the guys have pitched in the last month and a half. Darvish, Snell, and Musgrove, that's as good as any top three in baseball. Snell didn't pitch well on Saturday, and the Mets benefited from it. But but Darvish and Musgrove really shut them down. His ear did look shiny, but I, I trust Eno Saris on this stuff. And uh, he had a good story in The Athletic 
on Monday, uh, kind of breaking down how uh, it's really the the increased velocity that added to the spin for Musgrove, that it was kind of within the normal range. It wasn't what we saw, say, in June of 2021 when guys were, were dropping 300 RPMs on their fastball. Uh, his was up just a little bit, uh, up 100 and in line with, with what you'd expect with the increased velocity. Uh, you know, I think John Boy put out a, a video that showed that he didn't really touch his ear <laughs> at any point in the game. So, uh, you know, I, I think kind of similar to what Gary Cohen said after the game, you know, with, with Showalter there, like, if you're going out there, you should know. You better know. <laughs> um, and, uh, like, I, you know, covering the Red Sox, they had a, a, the incident with Michael Pineda where he had pine tar on in one game. They didn't say anything. And then he came back the next game against them and had pine tar on. Uh, and they came out. Well, that in that case, I remember that was like it felt like he was rubbing it in people's faces. <laughs> remember how obvious it was with Pineda? Like that that was it was like, OK, uh, come on, bro. Like, now, you know, it's it's like the um, the dorm RA situation, right? Like if, you, if your RA is cool and he sees you coming in with a hockey bag and he knows what's in the hockey bag, he looks the other way. But if you walk past him with a case of beer, he's got to write you up. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, they, they came out in the second inning and got him ejected. Um, and. You know, when, when Showalter came out before the sixth, my thought was kind of like, this is this, this is a weird time to do Like, either you do this in the third or fourth inning, <laughs> or you don't do it at all. Like, it's too late at this point. Uh, and yeah, it did, it did kind of smack of desperation. I was not, I had an odd experience because I, my, my, ESPN feed on my TV was was on the fritz and so in like the third or the fourth inning I got so frustrated that I I went down to a local bar and was and was drinking for most of the game which turned out to be a a good decision Uh, but I was not on Twitter and so I didn't was was the ear thing was it already like a Twitter event before Showalter went out there oh yeah I I think I I saw close cropped images of his ear by like the second or third inning (laughs) okay uh, and and that's the type of thing. So people need to like keep in the perspective in that where like the the postseason broadcasts tend to go for these like long, slow, uh, super high definition close ups. And I think that's why these things tend to spring up in the postseason more than in the past. I remember uh, that what is it? It was the 2013 Red Sox series, right? Where there was uh, various bullfrog uh, allegations. And I think that was the one where both managers ultimately said like, yeah, actually, you know, everybody does it. And they, they didn't say it, say it in so many words, but like the, the implication was strongly like, yeah, a lot of guys are using sticky stuff. We don't want to look too closely at, I want to say it was like green stuff on Clay Buckles beyond like his normal sheen of green stuff. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and they were like, oh, let's just uh, let, you know, everybody, everybody's just going to let this one go. Yeah, that was that was Bullfrog in Toronto. I think it was Jack Morris who was upset about it because he was just wiping his arms. Well, but it's wearing sunscreen. Was wearing sunscreen in a dome, which was the, the real mm-hmm. the real giveaway. Uh, right, but it came up in there in the World Series that year too, right? Uh, Someone had green. It was Lester maybe had like green stuff on his glove. Yeah, you're you're right. I, God, I forgot about that. There was a lot that went it's on just in that one series. of these things that comes up all the it comes up all yeah. the time. Is the you point. know Kenny Rogers um, smudge? Um, and uh, I yeah. think the, the interesting thing to me was that there were some players on Twitter who who thought he was doing something. You know, I think Brandon McCarthy said uh, thought he was doing something with it. Uh, you know, Andrew McCutcheon thought it was just uh, icy hot. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's uh, it, it's clear. I think. The idea of the the crackdown last June has not has not reduced the suspicion around it. It's you know similar to 
the steroids that there's there's the idea that you know oh, well spin rates have recovered so uh guys are just finding out a different more uh more palatable way to get away with it uh at this point than they were last year uh but uh, you know again there's i think there's very little evidence uh beyond like some some math that can be kind of disputed uh that that musgrove was doing anything on sunday night yeah i i mean and i thought I thought he handled it really well. Like, if someone came, I, I feel like if someone was like, "Can I touch your ear?" I, I, like, hell, hell no, no. Like, I, I don't. Maybe I have a thing about like people touching my face or something. But that I felt like uh, he was shocked, given especially where it was. Like coming coming out of his warmups uh, in the midst of a of a dominant performance, like clearly in his rhythm, um, it felt to me. Um, and, and I thought what Buck Showalter said was kind of perfect, and I think he's right, which was that, like, hey, it's not my job to look good. It's my job to do everything I can to help the Mets win the game. And at that point in the game, like, I thought that that was my move. I, I had We had enough to, to suspect, and, like, you got to take your chance was his point, I guess. Um, but if, if his point is right, that he doesn't care how he looks, then, like, we need to be able to say he looks pretty bad in that spot. Yeah, and, and there was, we should acknowledge that there was some gamesmanship both ways. You know, San Diego... Uh, had clearly made stepping out a a part of their plan against all of the Mets pitchers. Uh, you know, I I think it was it, it seemed more obvious to me against Degrom that that's what they were doing. I know they did it a lot more against Bassett, but Bassett is the guy who kind of makes you do that with with how long he takes to to decide on a pitch often. Um, so, you know, and and to, if you were an objective observer of that game and you see you know Musgrove get that check, get through the sixth inning, uh, and kind of look at look long at the Mets dugout. It's kind of cool, you know. It's it's yeah. It's like, it was really cool. Like I, I I see a lot of people on Twitter like I can't stand the Padres now. They were making all these faces at the Mets after that thing. Uh, like you know, check yourself, right? Like just take a step back and think of how you would feel as a neutral observer. Because I thought like I have you know no no hard feelings for Manny Machado making in that case making faces at Showalter, his old manager. No hard feelings for Joe Musgrove flipping his ear at the Mets like the the Mets shot that shot and so you open yourself up to that yeah it reminded me of like you know Kumar Rocker's no hitter against Duke in the College World Series uh and and Duke had like called a bunch of like actual timeouts where the coach (laughs) the batter goes down to the third base coach with like nobody on base just to to mess with his timing and he still uh struck out everyone um that it's just like oh yeah that, that that's a guy who knows how to handle what you're trying to throw at him uh so yeah, it was uh, the, the entire game. Like, what did what did you think of the fact that the game was not sold out? Uh, which I thought, like, it was a weird feeling in the the stadium before the game. You know, at, at before game one, obviously, like the the place was packed an hour before game time. Before game two, it was it was not buzzing the same way, but it was packed an hour before game time. Before game three, we were openly wondering if the fans didn't know what time the game started. Uh, because it was relatively sparse at six o'clock and even you know at, at, at seven there were plenty of empty seats uh, which is not what you expect in this market for this team no yeah I, I you know that's it's funny because I um, I hate to say it like I I was so both of those factors like play I was I was in the car on Sunday morning with a friend of mine who and I was like hey the game's at four o'clock today because remember the game was briefly scheduled at four o'clock before one of the other series wrapped up early uh and so the schedule got moved around a little bit I wonder how that played with it 
Uh, Sunday night tends to be a little tougher for people than Friday night or Saturday night. It's a postseason game. I feel like that's not really a great excuse. Um, and also, like, I was offered a ticket. My friend who was driving was like, hey, I got an extra ticket for tonight. It's 150 bucks." And I'm lo- logistically, it, it wasn't going to work out for me. But um, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess the maybe game one of that series and, and the way the Mets played down the stretch was was demoralizing enough to keep people away i would tend to guess it's just logistics yeah and, and price you know that that uh, right. i heard from a, a bunch of people on twitter that the price was uh was just prohibitive for them uh, even in upper deck seats uh which you know is something the Mets should work on the next time they host a playoff game uh right. I, I, well if you if clearly if, if you if you didn't sell and i didn't know that it wasn't a sellout if you didn't sell out your playoff tickets you price them wrong yeah and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, I, I I do think it kind of played into just this, this general atmosphere around the team, and and I'll be honest, I I didn't feel it as much in the Washington series. I, I was looking for it in the Washington series in the clubhouse those days. I didn't I didn't see it, and then you kind of felt it over the weekend a little bit more of kind of resignation among the, not not just the fan base but but the team itself. Um, and and in particular, like you know, it was it was just like little weird things, like you know, before Sunday's game, Showalter pointing out like publicly that oh, it's a really tough pitching matchup for us. Um, that that Musgrove had been so good, and that Bassett's stuff did not play particularly well against the Padres lineup because it's a lineup that struggles more with velocity. Uh, and it's things like you know, I mean, in the aftermath of the game, I've I've been in some been in some clubhouses when a team season ends in the postseason, uh, in the the ALCS or the World Series. Uh, or the, the, the division series, uh, and this was the least sad um, of the the clubhouse. I mean, not not that this isn't like Seinfeld where it was restrained jubilation or anything, but it was just it, it seemed like they had come to terms with the fact that the season was going to end soon, regardless, and that well, it, you know, if it I ended mean, now, fine. Can we at least chalk some of that up to the fact that it is a very veteran team, right? That these guys have been through this before. Some of them have been through it before and, and come out on top. Most of them have, have, or many of them have sort of been through postseason disappointments in the past and like they're grown ups and can handle it. I mean, that, that's part of it. Uh, I, you know, for there, there's a couple of players on this team who, who tend to like stew after bad regular season games. And, and we didn't see that to the same extent. I think, you know, like Seth Lugo was the one who, who really seemed the most broken up about it in part because he's a free agent and, and he doesn't know if he's going to be back. Um, he, he was clearly emotional. Brandon Nimmo, a bit emotional in kind of this, the same vein, but in general it was, you know, the, the inside baseball part is like I, I wrote my story and I had kind of I had left space at the top for a, a post game clubhouse scene uh, and I'm thinking of you know I was I remember being in the clubhouse uh, for the Phillies when they lost the World Series in 2009 when they lost the NLCS in 2010 uh, when I was interning at MLB.com uh, and there being like stark scenes in the clubhouse of of their their, their sadness uh, and uh, there was not any of that. 
for the Mets. There was there was there was there was not that one player sitting at his his locker an hour after the game, still in uniform, head down in his hands. Um, and maybe I was looking for too cliche an example, uh, but it was like, oh, I. It was just not what I expected that the mood to be in that room. Uh, I think Andy McCullough uh, from The Athletic, who has covered a lot more uh, postseason games than I have, uh, compared it to like the end of a of a pretty good party uh, where like everyone's just kind of, hey, yeah, like I'll, I'll see you down the road kind of thing. Uh, so that that was, I think, you know, we we didn't want to make too much of it at the time. You weren't you never know how it's going to happen. Uh, but the Atlanta series really did take some some bite out of this team's momentum moving forward because it, it made the the postseason road so much more difficult in a way that they seem to to understand uh, and to acknowledge. And and it it uh, it highlighted or or underscored some flaws in the team. Uh, it showed the humanity of those top two starters, who I think uh, many fans, myself included, you just sort of take as a as a given for wins in the postseason. Like there's no way they're going to lose a series, a three game series, when when Scherzer and Degrom get two of the starts. Yeah, and and you know you would have thought that a especially a three game series that they were well set up for that. I I really expected Scherzer to to rebound from the start in Atlanta. We've seen it before this season where. Uh, when he does have a bad start, he talks about what he needed to needs to fix mechanically, and he does it, uh, and he's good the next time out. Uh, so I I was really surprised that that he had the outing that he had uh, in Game One. Uh, you know, Degrom. I, I think you look back at it uh, and you want to lump Degrom in with Scherzer and Bassett, and you look at it and he had two quality starts. Uh, the the game in Atlanta, six innings, three runs, is not what you expect from Jacob Degrom. We we understand that. Uh, but it is, it, it, I think it speaks to, you know, I compared statistically uh, what he did in, in 2015 game five against the Dodgers, which is, I think, still held up as like the Jacob DeGrom start, um, the, the start that he, he really won over the fan base, and what he did on Saturday night in another elimination game, not a winner-take-all game. Uh, and they're pretty similar. It was like six innings, two runs. Uh, I think it was seven strikeouts, three Ks in 2015. It was eight strikeouts, uh, seven strikeouts, two walks. Uh, it was eight strikeouts, two walks this time. Uh, so uh, it just, I think it speaks to how the expectations around DeGrom have changed to the point where he can go out there and throw six innings and give up two runs in a playoff game. And you're like, ah, man, DeGrom's just not right. You know, I mean, that's a bad start for Like that's, that's, and, and that's the truth. Looked, that's a bad start for yeah, him. Yeah, I looked at it, you know, he, he'd made something like 140 starts over the last five regular seasons uh and his median start in terms of game score uh is six innings one run <laughs> uh, like that is that is a below average uh below median Jacob deGrom start uh and I think you know like we, we'll, we can get into the Jacob deGrom offseason decision for the next several weeks because uh, it's not gonna there's not gonna be any movement on it for the next couple weeks uh but uh, I think it it is interesting to note just how different the expectations are around him than most any other pitcher. Like, you know, how how many pitchers in baseball can go out and give you six innings, two runs at a playoff game, and you say, ah, they didn't they didn't do the job. He didn't show up. I mean, he's, right? He's like, yeah, out. he's checked out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I you know, I don't and I don't think it was that to me. And, and it looked like this maybe in his, his last few starts. It felt like you know he's coming out guns ablaze, throwing 100 to 102. And then I don't know if it was that you know after the injury he never built the stamina back up, or if he had it back up and then it, it, you know he he who knows? I you know I can't speak to Jacob Degrom's body, but it did feel like as the velocity started to tick down, uh, if you miss a spot, if you miss a spot with 102, you're fine, right? But if you miss a spot with 96 in the in the majors, it's a guy's gonna hit a home run. 
Yeah, it's really just the home runs that he. I think that's the separator for him over the last, you know, really starting with the O'Neill Cruz home run <laughs> against Pittsburgh uh, was just he gave up that one. He gave up uh, one or two against Oakland. Uh, gave up the three in Atlanta, and then the the Grisham home run against San Diego. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's fixable for him. Uh, home run rates are, are not the stickiest in base, uh, stickiest for most pitchers, especially pitchers of of his quality. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, it's <laughs> do do you want to get into the the off season thing with him now, or do you want to wait for that? Well, well, we'll get a little. We'll do, we're going to wait for that mostly because we got. A, there's a lot. I mean, it's, there's a there's a, a lot of guys heading for free agency. We know the Mets have uh, presumably, at least we 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 think the Mets have a lot of money to spend or will be willing to spend a lot of money. We assume they're going to chase Degrom again. Uh, we don't know how they'll play Brandon Nimmo, Aaron Judge, all, all these different things. But we have plenty of time in the off season to talk about that. But our question does sort of it's a two-parter um the second part does sort of relate to uh degrom's future is that good can we can we find that as a compromise because yeah, everybody wants to talk about compromise. degrom's future all right so first part of the question is not about that um this is from terrence via email if you've got a question for the show you can email ask at gmail.com uh, or you can ask us on twitter uh i'm at og tedberg tim is at tim Britton. um we actually got a question on twitter that i'll use as a follow-up with the degrom thing too uh, terrence wants to know First, will the curse of Timmy Trumpet become endorsed as a conspiracy theory for the way the season ended for the Mets? I live in L.A., and my Dodger fan friends were none too pleased by the live rendition during the series over Labor Day. I'm wondering if they send in a hex request to the baseball gods, because that's about when things took a turn for the worse. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld feels this way, too. Uh, I, you know, there, there's certain things that happen in sports that, that upset me because it, it prevents things like it from happening again. Uh, like, I was mad when the... I don't like have special fondness for the Golden State Warriors, but I was mad when they didn't win the championship the year they went seventy three and nine because it meant that I believe the the team that had the best record in in regular season history in all four major professional sports has now not won the championship, uh, and so it it makes teams not try to do that. Um, I don't want a world in which having a live <laughs> a live trumpet performance in the middle of a baseball game is frowned upon for superstitious yeah. reasons that's exactly uh, right. we, that's exactly we right. want more of this in baseball imagine if like like you know the, the marlins have like that section in the crowd where, where some some people play instruments or they did at least a couple of years ago uh as steve gelb's memorably chronicled uh, yeah. like we should have this all the time 100 <laughs> um, percent. yeah that so, should be yeah people should be encouraged should we, we there should be a, a live yeah i'm with you on that 100 percent. yeah so there's no hex of timmy trumpet in fact i would even say I believe Edwin Diaz is cool enough that, like, and he's he's another one of the free agents. Uh, maybe you just write into your contract. Like, there's a we have a two million dollar retainer for Timmy Trumpet. Whenever he is available, he will be at City Field playing you in. And, and it, like, it's not like Diaz did not struggle in any way. Did he give up a run after that performance? You know, it's, if Edwin Diaz had turned into a pumpkin at that point, uh, like if he had blown the save that night, if he had after in the the time after that. Uh, like just pitched uh, if 2019 Edwin Diaz just showed up again then you'd be like man that's that's you know I don't believe in causation over correlation necessarily but there's uh, there's some evidence there uh, that that did not happen uh, Timmy Trumpet is not the reason that the Mets are uh, are home on October 11th 
my favorite example of the one bad this isn't a superstition thing but the one bad thing ruining everything for everybody was when Monday Night Football got the idea to put a comedian in the booth which I thought was the best idea like why not have someone who's like smart and funny and off the cuff and can like add some levity to this and make it a more entertaining product and the person they settled on was Dennis Miller a guy who's like entire his whole shtick is is like is tightly written like prepared phrases that he then just tried to jam into the Monday Night Football broadcast. It was horrible. And then since then, they, no one, I don't think has anyone committed, uh, considered like, let's just put an entertainer as part of a broadcast booth. It was a great idea. They just botched it. Um, the second part of the question is buried in my Gmail. Um, here we go. Uh, I'm not going to do the, the thing where I blame our best player, uh, i.e. Beltron, but I have a question for you and Tim about DeGrom. I can't remember a pitcher who has been handled with more delicacy and care than the Mets have handled DeGrom over the past two years. Uh, Steven Strasburg, maybe. Um, That's the one but, I was thinking for all, for, Yeah, for all that worked out. Um, mysterious injuries, extended rehab, added rest days, 75 pitch limits. Everyone on the staff had to adjust to him down to the order of the playoff rotation, accounting for how often he can start and when he could bounce back. Was this plan drawn up by Hefner and company or dictated by DeGrom? And if DeGrom signs elsewhere, does the organization feel good that they did right by their star player, or do they feel used and wonder if they should have been more aggressive and used up more of his bullets? I mean, just 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 thinking off the top of my head. I mean, Shohei Otani, the the Angels have a six man rotation because that that's right. The way to but that's a he's a that's an asterisk. That's an asterisk. Um, you know, like the the Mets were clearly careful with Degrom. Um, you know, in the 2021 season, uh, there were I think three starts that he left early because he wasn't feeling right. Um, and then this year, this year to me is different than 2021 because it was one injury. It was the one he suffered. It was the stress fracture in his right scapula that he suffered at the end of spring training. Uh, and that kept him out for four months, which I know they tried to downplay it at the time. A another pet peeve of mine is when organizations try to downplay injuries because what happens is uh, the, the injury takes its usual course of time. Four months for that injury is not ridiculous. It's, it's what Brandon McCarthy and Michael Waka both experienced when they had it. Um, and, then and then fans start to blame the player for being soft. Um, it's, it's what happened with the, the Mets for years with like Jose Reyes. Um, and it, uh, you know, when you downplay an injury and you say, oh, he should be back in two weeks and he's not back in two weeks, it's what's wrong with him. Um, and so I, this year I, I, I kind of separate from last year uh, in terms of it being one single injury. Last year was just kind of a, a series of minor maladies uh, that, that seemed to keep him out of games. I, I do think there's an art as a pitcher you know, and, and Scherzer talks about this a lot, to knowing wh what you can get through and what you can't. Um, and it felt like for a lot of 2021, Jacob deGrom was trying to find that line to know what he could get through and what he couldn't. Um, and we talk about the, the ridiculous standard that he's created for himself. You wonder if that plays a part in it. Like if when you're pitching in 2021 and you've got a sub one ERA every time you're on the mound, it was only the last start that it climbed over one. Uh, and you give up, you know, you, you don't feel like you're at your best uh, and you don't feel like you can continue that standard. You say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe something's wrong. Maybe I should get out of here. You know, it's the same way, like, again, six, six innings, two runs in a playoff game. People think 99, you know, yeah, like he's, I'm yeah. only, he's only throwing 98. What's wrong? Uh, and so I, I think that was something he, I don't, I don't know that he's figured it out as to the extent that Scherzer has. I mean, look, we can still question whether Scherzer knows the, the exact line with what he's been pitching through with the oblique and, and how, uh, you know, 
the the comments that he made to to the Athletics Ken Rosenthal before that Atlanta start, where he said, you know, that that kind of was eye opening, I think, to just about everyone when he's talking about getting to the offseason and resetting that injury because uh, he'd been pitching so well before that, and he pitched poorly after that. Uh, you're, you're like, oh, maybe that that was really bothering him more than we realized, uh, and that he. I think every every athlete, every pro athlete is. Uh, probably a little bit tougher than he should be, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, they, they talk all the time about knowing the difference between being hurt and injured. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Mets did, they, they coddled DeGrom a little bit this year. You know, he only threw over 100 pitches once. Uh, the extended rehab, I mean, it was not, it was not like he spent six weeks uh, rehabbing. Uh, he didn't have a spring training, so we knew it was going to take a while. Um, and then the, the other thing that, that, no, he had a spring training. Well, he, right? well, he, 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 didn't got, he didn't get out like he didn't get more than three innings in a spring training outing. Yeah, so he kind of. But it was right. Know, it was right up against the end of the uh, end of spring training when when we found out he was he was out. Yeah, right? there there is like the difference between like you know the the pitcher who, yeah, who works the three four five six innings then gets hurt uh, doesn't have to build their arm back up the same extent. Um, and the the one other thing and. I, I'm really coming across as a DeGrom apologist here, I guess. Uh, the one other thing that bothers me is people say he hasn't pitched a full season in three years. No one pitched a full season in 2020. <laughs> he, he made he made 12 starts just like just about everyone else in 2020. Um, it, it's, it's, it's from the middle of 2021 on, um, and that's a year and a half. Uh, it is, I, I understand, it's different. If he had just had Tommy John surgery at the end of 2021, or in the middle of 2021 and come back 13 months later and done what he did, uh, you would be saying everything's fine. Um, but because it's been a, a number of smaller things, because it's been kind of you haven't been able to pin it on one thing, it has felt different. His health is a bigger question mark going into this free agency than, for instance, Justin Verlander's was going into last year uh, when he was a free agent coming off two years of Tommy John surgery. Um, but uh, the the idea that Degrom is, you know, kind of milking it in any way, uh, I I just don't agree with. Um, well, since you are being a Jacob DeGrom apologist, uh, real quick from our friend Clay Davis, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, he says, Jake seems a little snippy with the media. He's referring to his, his post-series uh, scrum. And he says, he seems like a nice guy, but he also seems like maybe he hates the media. What's the media's take on DeGrom? He seems so unknown. I think, you know, more so than other players, and I believe we talked about this once before on the podcast, mm -hmm. is DeGrom is uh, generally apathetic toward, like, publicity. Um, right. He's, you know, there have been other pitchers on this team, uh, in, in Matt Harvey and Noah Syndergaard, who, who kind of craved that media attention a bit more. Uh, and, and in a different way, R.A. Dickey, too. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's a good point. Uh, and DeGrom, you know, he's he is different from other athletes I have covered uh, in the sense that, you know, there are... A lot of pitchers uh, are not good in the like the post game scrum uh, where you know it's it's fifteen reporters around them all throwing questions at them. They know they're on TV at the time uh, and they don't feel at ease with that. They feel uncomfortable. Uh, they get a little snippy in that spot. Degrom very rarely does that. Degrom is is excellent in that interview setting. Um, he does not engage in one on one conversations. Uh, to the extent that that most every other player does, uh, he turns down one-on-one -on -one requests, not just from beat reporters, uh, but from national reporters as well. It's why you so seldom see Jacob Degrom quoted in a story outside of the times he starts. Um, it's because he doesn't do most of those interviews, and uh, you know that is that is something you learn to live with as a beat reporter. It is frustrating um, that you know you want to you have like one little question you want to ask him about what he's working on with this, and and he's not going to talk to you about it. Um, 
it's there are things that bother you more as a beat reporter you hate when a player is like that with the beat but not with national reporters Degrom is is he he doesn't discriminate he is he is uh kind of aloof to all reporters uh in that way um you know it's it it it's interesting because well he can't give away the secret to being Jacob DeGrom right <laughs> if he's just like what I'm working on is actually and like tells you how he throws 104 then everybody knows <laughs> and it, it just you know like having covered guys like Josh Beckett was very difficult to deal with in Boston uh, for someone who was just coming in uh, and John Lackey was the same way you know Marcus Stroman was difficult uh, for different reasons than DeGrom he was he, he was kind of more distrusting of any media question uh, in a, a press conference setting. And, and it was so difficult because they were all on Zoom, basically, with him. that You didn't get a chance to actually have a, an in-person conversation with him ever. Um, you know, DeGrom is, is different in that it, it comes across most of the time. Look, the Sunday night was a little different because he was asked about his contract stuff a couple times. And he's like, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, right. And once you say you're not going to talk about that, <laughs> right. I, I do find it very irritating when reporters then try to like twist it to uh, rephrase the question to get them to talk about it. Right. Um, so, uh, God, I, I went to a I went to an art event hosted by Shaquille O'Neal one time when he had a broken wrist, and the only rule they told us was like, don't ask him about his wrist, like he's working on it. And it was so cool that it was an art event uh, uh, curated by Shaquille O'Neal. I was psyched about that, and all the other reporters that were trying to like get him to to phrase a question about his wrist uh, around art. <laughs> Shaq, you know, when you're doing painting, a lot of things, you, you yeah. really got to have yeah, good basically. wrist control. Yeah. Would you say you're, was you're in a position that. to paint at this point in time? Yeah. Can you hang a heavy uh, gallery painting? Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like, let's hear Shaq's take on modern art, guys. Like, this is a historic event we get to cover here. It's not a wrist injury. Sorry. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think DeGrom hates the media. I, I don't think he caters to them uh, in a way that some players do. Uh, and when we talk about kind of what he wants in free agency, we're going to talk about a lot about, like, where he's going to feel comfortable. Uh, New York has a different kind of media presence than other other markets. At the same time, uh, you know, I feel like the he, the New York media knows the, what the deal is with Jacob Degrom in a way. Like if he signs in uh, L.A., if he signs in Texas, if he signs in in Tampa, if he signs in Milwaukee, whatever. Uh, like he's gonna be the guy. Tiny Milwaukee would be so funny. It would be so funny if the Brewers just come out with like three years, one fifty for Jacob Degrom. Like he's gonna be the guy in spring training. It's gonna be a different feel for him. It's gonna be uncomfortable for a, for at least a stretch of time. Uh, and so in his free agency, he has to gauge kind of what the what what he would expect the comfort level to be at each different spot that he could sign with. In addition to what they're offering financially, what they're offering competitively, and all of that stuff. I think my comfort level would be greatest with him healthy and at the front of the Mets rotation in 2023. <laughs> yes, I, I don't think you're alone in that. Uh, we are just about out of time. Tim, uh, until early next week, peace out. Adios. Adios.